The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, don't let Amazon kick your Azure. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 565 with guest Steve Evans, recorded live Monday, May 31st, 2010. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms, WPF, Silverlight, and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And now... The man who gives Al Gore credit for inventing the divorce, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. Carl and Richard here. Mr. Campbell. Yes, sir. Mr. Campbell. Yes, sir. Hey, you know who's getting close to popping out? Who? Little Campbell Franklin Miller. Oh, no. I guess that's true. It's almost time, isn't it? It is almost time. What is it, end of June? Yeah. And you know what's going on at the end of June, folks? We have, oh, yes. We have, this is the official announcement, I think. The official announcement. Yes, it's true. So Richard and I were uh, just up in, uh, at his house. I think we were at your house, weren't we? Or were we, we driving were at my down place. A... We were sitting in the outdoor kitchen having a sip of scotch, as I recall. And that's always where the best ideas get hatched, you know? <laughs> sitting down having some scotch. I mean, that's how Carl and Gary started. Gary Wisniewski and I were just in a bar in New Orleans saying, you know what? These website things might catch on. They might catch on. They might be good. So uh, what Richard and I have decided to do is go on the air live and stream for an entire weekend, and not just an entire weekend, a long weekend. Yes, of course, a long weekend. So Saturday, June 26th, Sunday the 27th, and Monday the 28th, and we're only going to sleep for like you know eight hours. So during those eight hours, we're going to play repeats of what we've already recorded. So essentially, it's going to wrap up for you. 8 p.m. on Tuesday, June 29th, and we're essentially going to broadcast to your phone, you know? Yeah, we're going to stream continuously. Uh, we've got different guests coming on every hour. We're going to throw a little music and uh, other stuff in there here and there as well. So we're, we're going to yeah. do as many shows as we can do in the time we've got. That's right, and it's and they're not going to be your typical shows. It's really going to involve the community. Yeah, what we really want to do is bring back guests that everyone knows really well. Right. And get them to answer the questions that are out there. You know, we get a lot of email and we try and answer as many of them as we can. But this is an opportunity for folks to directly interact with the guests. And we've yeah. got an awesome list of guests here, Carl. Yeah. Pat Hines, Stephen Forte, Rob Howard, 
this guest called TBD. I'm not sure who that is. Never heard of him. What's yeah, that guy? Actually, uh, Rory Blythe is going to make an appearance. Awesome. James Kovacs, Don Demsack, Dan Egan. I'm sorry, Daniel Egan. Brian Randall, <laughs> Tim Huckabee, Chris Sells, Daniel Simmons, Brian Noyes, Charles Petzold, Sahil Malik, Mark Dunn, Andrew Brust, Glenn Block, Ethan Weiner. Remember Ethan? Yes, it's I like do. the father of uh, custom controls, you know, or something like that. Uh, Mary Jo Foley. And Mary Jo's coming up from New York. She's going to be in the studio. Nice. Kent Alstad, Keith Elder, Mark Miller. And this is why I brought up Miller, because we don't know if he's going to be here or not. But if he's if his wife is in labor, then we're actually going to call him on the cell phone, and we'll talk to him while Campbell Franklin Miller is being born. That ought to be That's, fun. Yeah, that, that might be above and beyond, but okay. Uh, John Bristow. Uh, Jonathan Zuck, Jeffrey Palermo, Scott Stanfield, Ted Neward, Miguel Castro, Les Pinter, Billy Hollis, Rocky Latka, and a few more people who haven't signed up yet. We've got a few more folks we're trying to lock down. but uh, So the whole idea here is in advance, you can send us, if you send us emails for questions around the live weekend, go take a look at donnetrocks.com slash liveweekend.aspx. Mm-hmm. Or uh, during the actual weekend, we will have, of course, watching the Twitters. Yep. And we'll throw up the IRC channel again. So uh, that good old IRC channel. We're going to take as much direct interaction as we can and get all your questions answered. And, you know, it's going to be very relaxed. It's the weekend. You know, we're not going to go nuts. Uh, We're just going to try to reconnect with the community in real time. That's what we really want to do. The Twitter tag is going to be pound dnr live so if you want to tweet about it right now that you should use that pound dnr all right let's now get to better know a framework awesome all right what you got for me well if you wanted to do drag and drop in wpf who doesn't want to do drag and drop yeah and i'm not sure if let me see i'm not sure if this is supported in silverlight or uh i'm not supporting wpf yeah, I think it's I think it's WPF okay. because because uh, that requires Olay and all that stuff. And uh, all right, so anyway, we're talking about System.Windows.DragDrop, and that provides helper methods and fields for initiating drag and drop operations, including a method to begin a drag drop operation and facilities for adding and removing drag and drop related event handlers. So cool, you've, you've done this before in different languages. You've done it before in .NET and Windows Forms. Now it's in WPF. Thrilling, I know. After that announcement of the live weekend, that's uh, yeah, all you got, Franklin. Anything here? <laughs> I'm just I'm, I'm baffled at our baffled. You know. Well, when we first started talking about this on Twitter, I think generally the reaction is, "You guys are crazy." Yeah, that's nuts. That'd but, be fun. Um, hey, I got an email. All right, who's talking to us? This is from Tony Hupel. It's a bit long, but it's a good one. You'll enjoy this. All right. Hi, Carl and Richard. Long-time listener, third-time emailer, zero-time coffee mugger. Uh-oh. Hint. That's right. I've never mugged a coffee. Ah. Okay. Just finished listening to show 558 on reactive extensions with Matthew Pawasaki on my commute to work this morning, and all I can say is thank you. I spent too many hours of my time over the last month wondering what the heck kind of problem the reactive extensions could possibly try to solve. When I first watched the Mix 10 session on RX, I thought, okay, I know this is a tricky concept, and I get the benefit of asynchronous collections and observer patterns, so why don't I get the point of RX? 
I reviewed the Channel 9 videos, the Hansel Minutes 198, and still, why the hell did they make this? Huh. It seemed like a huge mistake to handle input events and asynchronous callbacks as one thing. And to top it off, they kept saying how cool it was to use these with JavaScript, which already had user input events and callbacks for async calls built in. I even considered going so far as to write a blog post on why RX was an exercise in mental self-gratification, Ooh, if you get my drift. Yikes. When I saw the subject of the show, I almost decided to skip it, which I rarely do, because it have my distaste towards RX. Well, I'm so glad I decided the issue must be me and gave RX another 50 minutes of my time. Thanks to you guys and Matt, I now understand that in the mouse drag drop case, this simplifies the management of state across multiple callbacks, yep. especially in JavaScript, the very language I thought it was most pointless for. Mm. Querying, similar to how you would against the database for a combination of things, for a set of things to be true at a given time and to manage all of that for us is pretty cool. Very cool. I wouldn't have understood this without your questions and requests for clarifications, as well as Matt's ability to take the examples I had heard several times before, but then describe what I don't manage to anymore when I use Rx. Now, I won't make a fool of myself with this, maybe I'm a village idiot, but I don't get why I need reactive extensions blog post I was considered writing. Yeah. Without you guys, I probably would have made a big mistake, or perhaps created an inflammatory blog post that would have made my career. <laughs> Either way, you guys are a huge help, very entertaining, and I appreciate all the hard work you and the folks at Pwop Studios put in to make these and other shows a treasured public resource. And thank you to Telerik and Data Dynamics for making this possible. Yeah, thanks, guys. Much love from Tony Hupel in Kent, Washington, 20 miles south of Redmond, so he ought to be smarter. <laughs> P.S. Carl. I am a drummer. Well, that explains everything. Ah. So I just need a little help every once in a while. Thanks again for both of you. Hey, you know what the drummer got on his SATs? What? Drool. Nice. What do you call a drummer without a girlfriend? Homeless. There you go. <laughs> hey, Tony, you earned yourself a mug this time, man. We'll ship it out to you right away. And if you've got any questions, concerns, ideas, revelations, send us an email. Dot at rocks at Franklin's dot net. I only say that because I also play drums. <laughs> yes, I would never do. I would never. And just about everything else, as I recall. Yeah, I would never say that about you know viola players, for example. Nah. Hey, you know what the difference is between a violin and a viola? What? A viola burns longer. <laughs> <laughs> That's just mean. All right, nice. I guess I guess we should introduce uh, Steve. Who? Steve. Oh, that guy. Steve Evans. You even mock me on the show, Richard? Oh yeah. <laughs> now you're, you're a repeat visitor now man you've crossed the line you're now family we yeah. get to mock you for an hour all right well well i get to mock you longer than that so i guess i should uh give you a proper introduction should i not <laughs> he went to all the trouble of supplying you with the correct bio that's something yeah here you go well steve evans is an it pro with over 10 years of experience and uh in one year this bio will be out of date nice he is a Microsoft MVP in Directory Services and MCSE and an accomplished speaker. He also has a background as a developer. He bridges the world between developers and IT pros and frequently speaks at code camps, user groups, and other technology events. Steve publishes a technical blog at CircTools. That's S-E-R-K tools.com. You can follow him on the Twitter username at S-C-Evans, S-C-E-V-A-N-S where you can interact with him and get updates on his upcoming screencasts, podcast appearances, and live webcasts. Welcome back, Steve. Thanks for having me. 
and also the fellow that helped make our very first stop on the road trip happen. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks again for that, sir. Well, I sent a couple emails. I don't know exactly know if I can take all the credit there, but yeah, <laughs> sure. You know, I'll they take were good all the emails. <laughs> yeah. Oh, thanks again for that. And I showed up to your third event too, so I should get some credit for that. Yeah. yeah. Well, we we owed you a couple of drinks anyway. Definitely. <laughs> And and a fellow switch hitter, you know, you spent a little time in dev, a little t- time in IT, so you're bipolar like me. <laughs> in in more ways than one. Apparently. So we're talking about the cloud today. What haven't we said about the cloud? Yeah, is there anything new to say about cloud? Is it cloudy well, today? Well, actually, I, I wasn't going to bring this up, but um, I specifically talked to you guys about doing this episode because of something you said, Carl. Okay. And I don't remember what it was, but it made me roll my eyes. All right. That's not (laughs) anything new, you know. (laughs) Um, So I've been doing a lot of talks. I mean, cloud computing has a lot of hype around it. Yeah. Um, Oh, yeah. You know, depending on who you're talking to, they're going to tell you that the cloud is going to solve everything in the world. Um, So if you talk to Microsoft, they're going to tell you Azure solves everything in the world. If you talk to Amazon, they tell you their solution solves everything in the world. Um, People are, are... sticking cloud on any product they have, regardless of if it has anything to do with cloud computing. I agree. It's um, sen- it's synonymous for anything on the internet. Right, exactly. So I just wanted to talk about, you know, what what are kind of the pros and cons of the different cloud solutions um, and, and also what are the pros and cons of doing it in-house or, you know, not in the cloud. Where do you start? Yeah. And what was it that, uh, and what was it that uh, I said that made you roll your eyes? I don't remember, but uh, <laughs> was it what, was it perhaps my uh, complaining about the term the cloud on your desktop? I don't think that was it. Um, it may have had something to do with you were talking to someone about Amazon. Okay. Um, Amazon Web Services, and you said, "Well, I don't remember what the comment was, but it was something along the lines of, well, Amazon would be easier than Azure,' um, which isn't uh, necessarily I said accurate." That? Easier was maybe the not. word maybe I Maybe I'm used? making this up. I don't know if I would have said easier. I maybe would have said more mature. Well, it's definitely more mature. But um, I don't know. Let's just pretend that's what you said. All that right, would be more sure. Go, we'll go with it. <laughs> <laughs> but first, let's talk about traditional computing. So we've had you know physical servers since the dawn of time. And then virtual servers came along. And these are great because you can do anything you want, right? But you're also responsible for everything. So let's think about what it, what's required to have a server um, operating. So first of all, you need planet Earth, but we'll knock that off as, you know, accomplished already. But you need some type of environment. So you need space to put the server. You need, you need power and you need some type of cooling. Um, you need a network. You need the hardware. You need the software like the operating system, the web server, the SQL server, the load balancer, the security systems, the monitoring systems. You need some type. You need someone to fill that IT pro role. You need someone to set all that stuff up. Now, sometimes the developers doing that. Sometimes you know, you're hiring someone to do that, and then you need the application on top of that. Right. So when we have you know traditional physical servers, whether we're um, you know we have them in house or we're they're at a company like Rackspace, you know all of those all of that has to be taken care of. Um, so you have a lot that you're responsible for. You also have a lot of upfront capital costs. So you're spending a lot of money just getting going. 
the thing that the cloud really solves is two things. First of all, is that upscale or that um, that upstart capital cost. So it's a pay-as-you-go model. And the other thing is that you get that scale up or down very quickly. So you can quickly add or, or remove uh, resources to your solution. Okay. Um, um, so that's what, you know, that's what we're getting out of the cloud. Now, the, the big thing that's come up lately on the traditional computing front is virtual servers. Um, and my only comment, you know, I kind of want to skip past it, but my big comment there is, you know, go virtualization. Yeah. You get the hardware redundancy for free with, um, with either Live Migrate or um, VMware's vMotion. And then you abstract away your hardware. So you can upgrade your hardware at a different time than you're upgrading your applications, which, is, which I find a lot of my clients, it's a big deal for. They're not saying, well, we have to upgrade the operating system now because the hardware is three years old. They're just upgrading their applications when they want to upgrade their applications, as opposed to when their hardware is dictating it's time to move to new hardware. Now, you mentioned Live Migrate. That's something that developers yeah. might not be familiar with. What's that? So I mean, Live Migrate, out, right? So Windows, um, so Windows Hyper V Live Migrate or VMware vMotion is is a technology that allows you to have multiple um, virtual machine servers, and your your virtual machines are running off of some type of backend storage, um, you know, so a NetApp or a, a EMC SAN. And that allows you to move a, a running virtual machine from one physical server to another physical server. And it does this in the middle of operations. So let's say I had a virtual machine that was uh, a Microsoft SQL server. And I'm running a, a query against this SQL server. And for whatever reason, um, the system decides to move my virtual machine from one physical host to another physical host. With this technology that machine can move seamlessly from one physical machine to another. And me as the client hitting that SQL server has no idea it ever, ever moved. So some wow. of the reasons you might move a machine from one physical machine to another is if you have some type of hardware maintenance that needs to take place. Mm. So let's say you need to, you need to um, move a physical server from one rack to another, or let's say you need to um, install system patches on that physical, um, you know, on the, the host operating system. Or let's say that you have, you know, on a physical machine, you might have 10 to 30 uh, virtual guests running on it. And as the load changes throughout the day, you might shift around those guest machines based on load. So if one physical machine is overloaded, you can move uh, the guest machines around to balance the load out. Okay, cool. Now, Steve, you've dropped a couple of interesting tricks here that are not as simple as they actually are, as, they, as you make them sound anyway. Like the big thing about the SAN side of this, the NetApp or EMC, is that you need very fast storage that can be shared across multiple machines. That's not a cheap or simple thing to set up. True. But so all of this running the hardware yourself is not cheap or simple. No. This, um, is, a, this is a couple of hundred gram worth of gear and a really experienced guy. Like actually making seamless failover work is a bear. Hmm. Um, yeah, I guess so. I don't know if it's that difficult. Um, well, everything's I think easy when you have all the answers, right? That's true. <laughs> I think virtualization is definitely one of those things where you can do it cheaply and, and poorly, 
or you can do it, you can actually spend the, you know, throw the resources behind it that you need to and do it right. Um, I definitely see a lot of people trying to take, they, they go out and they buy a $4,000 server from Dell and they decide, well, we'll just make this a virtual machine and run everything on it. And then they're surprised when they don't get the performance they want out of it. You know, virtualization doesn't just provide you free computing resources. Like you still have to buy those resources. You're just throwing a bunch of, you're just splitting up your physical machines into smaller ones. You still have to really devote the resources you need to it. I don't know if that necessarily means you need a $200,000 worth of backend storage. Um, I mean, it would depend on how much you're trying to do with it. But, um, but yeah, I mean, you have to do it right. And it is definitely one of those things where you can, you can, you know, do it halfway and, and then not be very happy with it. And right. I see, I see a lot of my clients bring me in because they're not happy with virtualization. They're talking about, well, I, you know, virtualization doesn't work that well. We're thinking about going back to, you know, just straight physical hosts. And it's not that the virtualization, it's not that virtualization doesn't work well. I mean, Hyper-V and VMware are two great solutions. Yep. Um, you just have to actually devote the resources to it that it requires. You can't yeah. just give it a little bit of resources and expect great results out of it. Now, um, you, we started this conversation by saying no matter what you're doing, if you're you know building a local data center or you're going to use a, a cloud system, you should be virtualizing first. We did. Isn't that what you said? No. What I'm, what I'm saying is if you're not going to go with the cloud – Okay. Go with virtualization. Um, Don't some cloud solutions offer to run your virtual machines as is? There's probably some out there that do that. I don't think you could call that cloud computing, though. Okay. Um, one of the tenets of cloud computing is is the elasticity. So I can scale up or down very quickly. Right. Um, VMware doesn't re- VMware Hyper-V doesn't really provide elasticity like that. Now, it's a lot easier to add an additional virtual machine um, so let's say I have a web farm. It'd be very easy with virtualization just to add an additional virtual machine. Mm. It'd be very easy to say, okay, this machine gets an additional one gig of RAM or an additional virtual CPU. Okay. But it's not the elasticity of the scale of, of cloud computing where you can say, okay, I have tomorrow's going to be a big day. I'm going to double the number of computers that are running my application right now. Or, you know, it's now the weekend. Let's start pulling resources offline and then bringing them back online later. The other thing is that if you're running, um, if you're running virtualization internally or you're paying somewhere to run a, a VM for you, you're traditionally, um, I mean, if you're running internally, you're paying for those resources, whether you're using it or not. Right. And if you're paying someone to host a VM for you, usually the pricing model there is we'll host this VM for X number of dollars a month. Right. As opposed to the cloud model where it's, you'll, we'll charge you X number of cents per hour per machine. Mm. Right. The big thing with the cloud computing is if you don't use it, it doesn't cost you very much. And when you use it hard, it costs you more. Well, that's the way it should be. That's not always the way it is, is it? Sometimes, uh, sometimes just if you have things running, even though they're not being hit or being used, you're going to get charged for it. Well, that depends. So... Yes, if they're running, you're going to get charged for it. They don't really charge you based on how much it's getting used. Right. They're charging you based on if it's running or not. Yeah. Um, where you're, 
your changes in price per hour come in is how many instances you have per hour. So you really only need one instance to have your application running traditionally. Um, so if you're choosing to have 20 instances of your application running when you only need one, you're going to pay 20 times still, even though you have 20 instances barely doing anything. Right. Um, so that's, you, you know, you need some type of system in place to scale up and down as your application demands change. But back to the virtualization um, story real quick. You know, I'm, I'm finding clients now that are choosing to um, run a single, um, they have a physical machine running one virtual machine. Um, and it's, that virtual machine is assigned virtually or almost all the resources of the system. Um, so, you know, maybe it's a SQL server and it's this, the virtual machines assigned all the RAM available in that physical server. Um, but the advantage it gives them is they can pick up that VM and move it to another piece of hardware um, without affecting the application. So virtualization gives you this hardware redundancy um, for, you know, almost no cost. Yeah. Yeah, it's just ability to to abstract away from the hardware. I've I've done yeah. that where I've been able to point at a different machine and just have it move it over. But the big thing is, yeah, the upgrade cycle and so forth. But the, you're playing the difference between the virtual machines and the physical hardware. You know, I can light up lots of virtual machines inside of one computer, but if if I'm having scaling problems, I probably need more hardware, and that takes more time to light up. Although building out a new host machine doesn't take very long, and then you just populate it with VMs. Yeah, exactly. So adding a physical machine to your your VM cluster is is faster than bringing in new hardware, adding it to your SQL cluster, adding it to your web farm, etc. Right. So if you're looking for that quick scale up or scale down capabilities, that's when you're going to want to start looking at the cloud. So there's two big different there's two different major cloud solutions. The first one is called IaaS. So infrastructure as a um, actually what does it stand for? Infrastructure as a, I'm sorry, infrastructure as a service. And the other one's PaaS, so platform as a service. So IaaS is what Amazon Web Services is. And so this looks very much like the VM solution. So with Amazon Web Services, you get, um, you get a virtual machine in the cloud, and you pay a few cents an hour to run that virtual machine. Um, so Amazon's solution is called EC2. It's Elastic Compute Cloud. Um, and so for a Windows um, EC2 instance, it costs as little as 12 cents an hour, um, which works out to roughly $87 a month. Now, for that $87 a month, you get a 32-bit machine that has 1.7 gigs of memory and what's called an EC2, one EC2 compute unit. And an EC2 compute unit is um, a 1 gigahertz Xeon processor, or the equivalent of a 1 gigahertz Xeon processor. Um, so a large instance has, for example, four EC2 compute units, and that works out to two, two gigahertz processors roughly. Hmm. Um, so the thing with EC2 instances is when you power them off, they disappear. So it's not like you power them off and you can turn them back on and they come back up in the same state. Um, when you turn them off, they, they no longer exist. So you have to design a system where when the instances come online, they configure themselves. So they pull down the latest version of the website, and then all your data has to be stored off of the instances. Recently, they added the option to um, allow you to boot off of what they call EBS, or Elastic Block Storage. 
but the, you know it costs a little bit more. You have to pay for the storage on EBS, and then you lose that scalability aspects. If you have these instances that, if you're having to manually configure the instances when you bring them online or off, or when you bring them online, you know you're not able to say. I need five more instances right now. You're not able to have a system that just automatically adds instances to your application. You're having to do that manually. And so you lose a lot of that, that instant scalability um, solution that you would get otherwise. So you can't automate a setup from EBS? Okay, so EBS is their persistent storage, elastic right. block storage. Think of it kind of like a SAN, but it's only available to one instance at a time. So you can... You can set up a machine, have it boot off of EBS, and you get that persistency. Right. But but then when you need a second one, you're going to have to manually configure it to some degree as it comes up. So you lose that ability to say, I want three more web servers right now, and they'll just come online. Unless you make server one through five in EBS and say, okay, light up all five of these. Exactly. But then what happens when you need number six? Yeah, you have to have planned that in advance. Exactly. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik, whose RAD controls outperform all others. Are you experiencing performance hits when handling millions of records with your Silverlight grid? Have you been frustrated by the amount of XAML code it takes to create a control template? There are so many potential bottlenecks that can drag your app performance. And of course, there's no universal solution for them. The good news is the guys from Telerik understand the complexity of that problem. When building RAD controls for Silverlight, they isolate every probable source of performance loss. Then they apply a respective solution. Through UI and data virtualization, data sampling, and content recycling, RAD controls help you deliver unbeatable performance with your Silverlight apps. You can check out Telerik Silverlight Grid handling 50 million cells as a piece of cake or RAD chart working seamlessly with a million records. Just go to Telerik.com slash Silverlight slash performance for details. And hey, don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. They truly make this show possible. So what you really want to do is create an, a, what's called an AMI, an Amazon machine image, that has your basic configuration. And then the first time it powers on, goes out, talks to your source control, grabs the latest version of the website, automatically adds itself to your load balancer, um, and does all those kind of um, machine-specific stuff automatically. So that way, when you're at the beach on Memorial Day, and you have a, a surge in traffic, you, you can have an automated solution that adds machines for you, brings them into the load balancer, um, and your website's just now running with an additional EC2 instance. And vice versa, when everyone's at the beach and not going to your website, it can be powering off instances and just taking them out of the load balancer, et cetera, and you don't have to, that's all handled for you automatically. And you keep seeing your load balancer, but this is Amazon's load balancer, right? So Amazon recently, um, well, about a year ago, added a solution called um, ELB, Elastic Load Balancer. Everything in the Amazon, first of all, everything in Amazon's a, a TLA, and everything seems to start with Elastic, um, kind of like how everything with VMware seems to start with a V. Dang. So they have ELB, which is the Elastic Load Balancer. Um, so if you ran that 24 seven, it, it works out to about $18 a month. Um, and it's a fairly good solution. There has been some complaints about performance problems. Um, and until recently there was a lot of complaints that it didn't provide sticky sessions or that ability for when your website users, 
will always get directed to the same web server they originally um, were directed to. They recently added sticky support. Um, and people are starting to use it. Um, before that, people would set up a HA proxy box. Um, so that's a Linux open source um, load balancing solution. So you'd have to have a Linux instance uh, running HA proxy, and then it would act as your load balancer. But, and you'd be so running you that to, uh, HA proxy on an EC2 instance. Yeah, exactly. So you're still responsible. Now you're responsible for that Linux OS running HA proxy. You're responsible for HA proxy. Um, so you're still responsible for all that kind of stuff, which right. is well, kind I of think the it's story. A, is it an important distinction here? This is not like you could take one of your own virtual machines running in your data center on your computers and just load it on the web Amazon. You can't do that. You have to make the stuff on Amazon. Exactly. Um, and even after you've made it, you still have to maintain it. Those are your machines, your licenses, your patches. Like you've still got a fairly hefty IT commitment here. It, exactly. So infrastructure as a service is really geared towards IT pros. You know, so it's geared towards the people that um, want want to have all this, all this control, but they have to take on all this responsibility. They, they're still responsible for patching. They're still responsible for managing the web servers. Um, they're still responsible for managing the database servers. They still got to figure out how to do load balancing, how to do um, DNS, etc. Well, and, um, and the elasticity is man manual. There's nothing here from Amazon that says, I'll figure out when you need to add more servers. That's up to you. They actually now have something called CloudWatch, which will let you define some policies around when to add or remove instances. But you still have to have some solution in place that will add them. You still have to have that ability to add an instance, and it will turn into a web server for you automatically. Um, now, you could create... In Amazon, you can have your own AMIs or Amazon machine images. Um, so it's it's basically a template. So you could have one that has the latest version of your website and all that. Right. But but then every time you update your website, you're gonna have to go update your AMI. So that's not really the solution you want to go with. You you want to have a an AMI that pulls down the latest version of your website, um, or if it's running some type of database server, automatically you know attaches your database, or whatever the, the case may be. And where does that image need to live, Steve? So the image lives on Amazon storage, on, on right. specifically Amazon S3, which is the Amazon S3 stands for Simple Storage Service, which is a REST-based storage, um, which actually it, it can be used inside or outside of Amazon Web Services. So it's not just used by EC2. It can be used by... Um, you know, you can get an application called Jungle Disk, which is a workstation backup utility mm -hmm. that will send your data to Amazon S3's, S3 um, to store your data, you know, off-site in the cloud for you. But you can't take that image and then fire it up on EC2. That doesn't work that way. No, that's where your AMIs are stored. So you say, here's my AMI, launch an instance of it. Um, now, your AMIs are Amazon-specific, so it's not like you can be running Hyper-V, say, here's my template, you know, here's an image stored up on Amazon, now run that. Um, right. Amazon, I believe, actually runs Zen Server, um, which is just like Hyper-V or VMware, but they've customized it for themselves. Yeah, so these are custom instances. You've got to build all of this within Amazon, and, and then, like I said... 
the man updating of the website is not a trivial thing. You've got to light an instant in an isolated environment, push the new version off, and then shove that back down in the storage. Exactly. The other thing that as a .NET developer you need, you need to be aware of is Windows is a second-class citizen in Amazon. Um, really? They they added Windows Server support just before uh, Microsoft announced Azure, like literally the week before Microsoft announced Azure. They added Server 2008 support, like in, I think it was on October. Um, so, you know, they added Server 2008 support as Server 2008 R2 was coming out. So to this day, you still can't run Windows Server 2008 R2. Um, you're paying a premium for it. So, for example, on the small instance, you're paying $0.12 cents an hour instead of $0.8.5 cents an hour, which is basically the Windows licensing fee. Right. And the other thing is, is if you have, let's say, let's say you, have a, you already have Windows licenses and you want to migrate to Amazon's EC2, those Windows Server licenses are now useless to you. There's no way to take your license and transfer it to Amazon. Although they just announced a pilot program that will allow you to do, you know, I think they call it bring your own license. So it's basically, I have a Windows Server license. I'm going to use that on my EC2 instance. And I'll, you know, presumably I'll pay now the Linux price instead of the Windows price. So anyways, I think the, I think the basic idea I want to get across with Amazon is that you're still responsible for all this stuff. You know, you're still responsible for patching. You're still responsible for the load balancing. Someone is going to have to take that role as of an IT pro. Yeah. Um, now, a developer could take that role a little a little easier than if they were running all this in-house. But it's you still need someone to take that role of an IT pro. And in theory, you've offloaded the hardware problems. You're no longer worried about network drivers and that sort of stuff. But yes. you do have to off understand an awful lot about deployment, about patching. I mean, there's still a fair bit of work to do here. Yeah. So going back to my list of, you know, your, the requirements to run a service, you know, so the first, you know, we have an environment, network, and hardware. So all that's taken care of, all that's, you know, taken care of for you in the Amazon space. But you're still responsible for the operating system, um, the infrastructure stack like IIS or SQL. You still need that IT pro role, and you you know of course you still have your application on top of all that. Um, so it's not exactly, you know, you you still have a significant responsibilities um, to take care of. So I guess that sort of sets us up to moving to Azure, right? So in Azure, um, Azure takes a piece an application from you and runs it on your behalf, and so. You don't have, you know, in the Amazon world, you can RDP to your EC2 instance and you can right. install applications and do all that kind of stuff. On Azure, you get this web portal and you can take your application and upload it and they'll run it for you. And so if you fit inside the box, which is Azure, that's great because now you don't have, you know, all those responsibilities. You, you no longer have to worry about that software stack, the, the operating system, the web servers, the load balancers, the monitoring systems, etc. You don't have to worry about that IT pro role anymore. They're going to patch the systems for you. They're going to move your application to different machines as, when they patch the servers. And that's just all going to happen seamlessly on your behalf. And so all you're left worrying about is the application, um, which generally speaking is all the developer wants to worry about is the application. There are some limitations to what you can do in Azure, though. Um, so first of all, Azure is just Windows Server 2008 R2 
running, you know, IIS, um, and then your code runs with user permissions. So you can run, um, you know, everyone thinks of Azure is .NET programming, but you can also do PHP, you can do native code, you could even run a Java application um, inside of Azure. Um, anything that would run on Windows Server with user permissions, in theory, will run on Windows Azure. Um, I looked at the pricing difference between the between Amazon and uh, um, Azure last night, and it's kind of hilarious how exact their prices are. Um, the smallest instance on each solution is twelve cents an hour. Um, storage was was both fifteen cents a gig per month. Um, from a pricing perspective, they almost seem to work out exactly the same. Now, with Amazon, as your as your volume goes up, you get discounts. Um, with Azure, you know, it seems like if you have an MSDN license, you get a discount. If you're a BizSpark customer, you get a discount. You know, it's typical Windows licensing model where, you know, they have their retail prices and no one pays the retail prices. Um, so it's a little difficult to compare you know, exactly what the price differences are. Um, but it does seem like they're trying to make their retail prices match Amazon's prices pretty closely. Yeah, it's funny. I was talking to a, a Microsoft guy r during the PDC announcement. Um, so that was in 2008. And I was saying like, well, what's the pricing going to be? And he's like, you know, he said, well, I mean, look at what everyone else is charging. I think it's going to be pretty obvious that that's basically what we're going to charge. Um, and I think it's funny because now you look at the pricing and it's it almost looks like they went to the Amazon Web Services page and just copied their pricing. Um, right. Even if you look at the different instance sizes of what they call their web role or um, Amazon calls an EC2 instance, their instance sizes are almost identical. Um, yeah, it's it's kind of it's kind of funny. But you don't in some ways you don't have to do as much work, but you don't have as much control either when you're in Azure. Exactly. So you have to fit within the um, the Azure box. So let's let's say, for example, I had a third party application I wanted to install um, and have run out of out of Azure. Unless your application can just run from the command line, uh, you know, it doesn't require an install. You know, it's not going to run in the Azure cloud. And, and that's one of the big another big concern with Azure is. You know, if I write an application to run in Azure, and then for whatever reason, I'm not happy with Azure anymore. Let's say they raise prices on me. Let's right. say they're having reliability problems. I am i don't have anywhere else I can run my Azure application. You know, right now, Microsoft's the only person in the world that can run Azure. And as far as we know, they'll, they'll, they'll never be anyone else that, that has Azure available for us. Now... 99% of the time when we're talking about an Azure application, we are talking about a .NET app running, you know, essentially running on IIS. And so it it would be, depending on your application, it might be very easy to migrate from Azure to just a traditional IIS server. But, I mean, that just kind of depends on what pieces of Azure you decided to leverage. One of the things I've really been pushing for is to have other people running Azure besides Microsoft. Um, so whether that's, you know, partners of theirs that, you know, hosting companies that will run versions of Azure also, or whether it's, you know, there's a SKU you can buy and you can buy, you know, Microsoft Windows Azure and run it in your own data centers. But I, I know a lot of, 
I have a lot of clients who are hesitant to jump to Azure, not because of the technology, but just from the lock-in factor. Now, let's look at that from an Amazon perspective. Once I have Amazon instances running, I have to rebuild them to move them somewhere else. It's not, yeah, it's not like you can go from Amazon's EC2 to another um, cloud provider like right. um, GoGrid, for example. But it's that's the same story as if I was going from uh, one colo to another colo. Yeah, um, or run from your internal VM out to EC2. The different, right. I guess, that what makes Azure threatening is that it's a sort of development level thing. It's it's a little more frightening from an IT perspective of what it would take to move off of Azure. Exactly. So Azure is platform as a service, and that's really geared towards the developer. So it's all about here's my application. Here I can, you know, you're going to run it for me. You know, from that migration standpoint, um, you know, there's nothing else that can run that. On the infrastructure as a service model, while you might have a lot of investment into EC2, for example, it's still something that you can logically migrate to another application or to another service. Whereas on Azure, you can, migrating means recoding your app to some degree. The other thing is, is that, you know, you're going to store all your data in the Azure system. Um, and so how will you get that data out? You know, what's the migration path to get your data out of Azure? If you don't have a lot of data, it's not a big deal. You know, with SQL Azure, you could um, run an SSIS package to pull all that data out into a local SQL server. Right. But what if you're, you know, what if you're a, a, a website that collects a lot of data from users and, you know, maybe it's photos you're collecting and you're storing it in their blob storage? How are you going to get all that data out easily? Well, you're going to have to pump it out one record at a time and you're going to be charged for all those bytes. Right. One of the things Amazon provides, and this kind of, you know, talks to the maturity level of Amazon Web Services as opposed to, I mean, you got to remember, Azure has been in production since, you know, February 1st, um, you know, so right. it's roughly five months old, yeah. whereas Amazon's been around for, I think, since 2006. Yep. Amazon Web Services, that is. Um, Amazon provides a system where you can ship them a USB disk and they will either, you can either import or export data from them. So you can ship them, let's say I had um, 10 terabytes of data. I could ship them, you know, terabyte hard drives and they'll load it into the system for me. And they'll charge me to do that, but not nearly as much as the as the bandwidth cost would have cost me. Well, and probably time-wise too, downloading 10 terabytes of data, FedEx is faster than that. Right. There was um I mean, I, I remember this article in like 2002 talking about the fastest way to move a terabyte uh, to Japan. And it turned out the fastest way to do it was to to take your drives, put them in a box and have FedEx overnight them. And that was cheaper than that was cheaper than the bandwidth costs. And it was also faster. Um, now, of course, you know, in 2010, bandwidth was cheaper and faster. So it's not a terabyte anymore. But at some point, FedEx is a, a better network than the Internet. Um, which is kind of funny to think of that way. But Azure doesn't have anything like that right now. The only way to get data in or out of Azure is over the network. Um, right. And so if you have a lot of data, it's conceivable that you would never be able to get it out in a timely fashion. Um, you know, they, they're kind of locked to, you know, your data is kind of locked in their system to some degree. I mean, what impresses me about Azure, and we've already done shows around this, is this idea that, and you talked about with EC2, you shut EC2 down, it's gone. 
You know, you have to rebuild it. In Azure, you can actually spin things down and spin things up. It, it seems like the best scenario I've seen so far for Azure is I need a dozen servers for two months to run this heavyweight promotion. Mm-hmm. And then I can shut it down. It goes away. Yeah. The And the thing is, as you said, you know, with Amazon, it goes away. And with Azure, it, it doesn't. With Azure, it actually does go away. They've just stored your application, and they're just choosing how many instances to deploy it on. So um, one of the things with Azure EC2 is machines fail. Like, these are still running on physical machines, and machines just, hardware just blows up on you. In the Amazon world, um, EC2 instances can just disappear on you, and that means their hardware just blew up. And Amazon doesn't even tell you that happened. You just have to... You know, you just have to know in, in some way that you're down a machine. Um, in the Azure world, if your application's running on a machine and that machine just blows up on you, they're automatically going to bring up an instance of your application to replace it on your behalf seamlessly. You'll have no idea it happened. Um, so when you're thinking about, you know, if you've decided you want to go with the cloud and you're trying to choose between, you know, kind of the Amazon model or the Azure model, I mean, these are the kind of things to remember. While Azure might seem kind of scary from the, you know, I have to live within their model type standpoint, it takes away a lot of responsibility from the developer. It takes, it eliminates that IT pro role. We haven't really talked about the elasticity side of Azure yet. We've gone through EC2 in pretty clear detail about the challenges of lighting additional instances and loading into load balancers and so forth. What is Azure's experience when I want to add instances? Um, so in, in Azure, there's an XML file. And in that XML file, you define how many instances of this application I want. And so the default is one. Um, The maximum is 20 until you ask them for more. But there's UI there too, right? I mean, there's a wizard or something that you can run through and say how many uh, instances you want to spin up and where geographically you want them to, right? Uh, If there is, that's fairly new. Um, I mean, I, I know at least last night I was still looking at the XML file. Um, you know, it's through their website. Um, so, but in, in some way you, you change this value. Um, and you can even do it programmatically actually. Um, but so you just say, I want, I currently have two, I now want four and they just, they just handle that for you. And what they do is they take your application and they, they just deploy it to two more instances of, um, that are running in the Azure cloud. Um, one of the things you define when you when you launch um, a web role or, or worker, what's called a web role or a worker role, think of it, that's the equivalent of an EC2 instance or a, a, the equivalent of a Hyper-V virtual machine. Um, one of the things you define is, do I want it to run in uh, North America, Europe, or Asia? Um, so you can define, you know, where do I want my application running? And depending on your application, it might make a lot more sense to run it in Asia as opposed to the United States. One of the challenges with Azure is currently there's no automated system to have it spin up or spin down instances of your application. So you can, you can write code yourself to do that for you, to say, you know, based on this criteria, add an instance, or based on this criteria, remove an instance. Um, but that is still something you have to do yourself to some degree. Um, and you kind of have to be careful about it. Uh, if you're not careful, you can end up in these, um, these scenarios where you're going back and forth between, 
you know, two instances and three instances or 15 instances and 20 instances. Because as you add an instance, your load goes down. And so you think, you know, if you're not careful in the way you write your algorithm, you add an instance and now your load goes down. So you remove an instance and, you know, you could go yo-yo back and forth. So you still have, you're still responsible for that yourself. Remember, Azure's five months old. Um, so, you know, those types of solutions are, are coming. If you ask a Microsoft guy about that specific scenario, um, they'll give you this great marketing line about how, you know, they don't want to, if they did that automatically and then you got a big bill that would, you know, you'd be upset with them. Um, and I think that's a great line to use right now. And I have a feeling at some point in time, they'll all of a sudden have a solution and talk about how that's a great solution now. I mean, in the end, you want to be able to set parameters to say, I want you to go this far before you notify me, just so that you have a sort of spectrum on what your bill is going to be. But yeah. In the, you know, the, the thing we're selling for cloud computing is this elasticity. It ought to be automated. I, I completely agree with you. Um, now, right now in Azure, you're going to have to, you're going to have to do that yourself. Um, right. I think it's pretty safe to say, and, and this is with no insider knowledge, but I think it's pretty safe to say that, Microsoft will provide a solution at some point in time where you set some criteria around um, when to add or remove instances, and they'll handle that on your behalf for you. Um, just because everyone's trying to solve that problem themselves. Yeah, I can't imagine right not doing it at some point. Right. I mean, it's just logical. Um, one, one of the things we haven't really talked about is the storage aspects. Um, so in Azure, you get SQL Azure, which is just SQL Server 2008, um, that they run on your behalf. And it's a one gig database is $10 a month. A 10 gig database is a hundred dollars a month. And I know that they're about to add 50 gig databases. And I, I have, I'm not exactly sure what the pricing there will be with Amazon. You can either run SQL yourself off of an EC2 instance. That starts at a dollar one oh eight per hour, so one dollars and eight cents per hour. Or you can use they have something called uh, Amazon RDS, uh, so relational data storage, which is essentially they run uh, MySQL on your behalf. Um, or you can use in Amazon you can use Simple DB, which is their non-relational um, data storage engine. Uh, Azure has a similar thing with their table storage, which is their non-relational storage. Uh, one of the things to be aware of is if, if you're looking at an application, if you're looking at the cloud because you want massive scalability, uh, at some point your relational database system is going to be a bottleneck for you. Um, in the .NET crowd, there's a lot of concern around these non-relational database systems. Um, you know, how, you know, how well will that work? You know, how I lose my joins, I lose my, my reporting capabilities, etc. In the open source world, they've, you know, they're kind of embracing this, this no SQL stuff. And it's, it's working out quite well for them. I think that the important thing to remember around all this is some data is relational, some data is not relational. And, you know, don't be, don't be afraid to look at this, these non relational storage uh, solutions. Well, the other level that, that struck me is that we have been, you know, the big com complaint about the NoSQL approach is that they're not ACID. They don't have that high reliability to data integrity 
that that we come to expect from relational databases. But we've been brutalizing that with caching for years now. So it's in some ways you look at a seriously cached relational database and say, what you've done is engineered your way into a NoSQL solution. Yeah. One of the um one of the other big big um counterpoints to NoSQL is well I can I can have you know you have to have a really big application before you you know you're you're too big for a, a relational database. And that's true. You know, you can have a really, really big SQL server. You know, I, I have clients that have, you know, 24 CPUs and and hundreds of, you know, 100 plus gigs of RAM in their database database server. Isn't that the minimum requirement for SharePoint? <laughs> <laughs> I don't comment on SharePoint. Otherwise known as the SharePoint starter server. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> the thing is, those really big database servers are really, really expensive. Um, yeah. You know, so yeah, you can get these massive database servers and you can also have a massive bill um, to purchase those database servers. Um, I think one of the things with the NoSQL stuff is that they're scary right now because the tooling around them sucks. Um, you know, entity, as soon as the entity framework supports, you know, a, a NoSQL um, uh, storage engine, I, I think we'll see the .NET crowd adopting you know, being a lot more open to moving in that direction. We're just about out of time. I've got to wrap it up. But thank you for uh, sharing your knowledge about uh, about the cloud. It's good stuff. Thanks for having me. All right. We'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklin's.com. .net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a